So good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Good. All is well. Uh, Nathan is taking a, a couple of much-deserved days off, so uh, he will be back here on the following Sunday. But uh, so he left you with me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So today, I want to talk to you about, I've got, it, I, I may have to speed this up a little bit. I'm going to tell you straight up that I hope you brought a, a lunch because I have a lot. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't edit this message. I'm going to say that. So. But today I want to talk to you about the unity of God. And as I stand here today, we have a lot of things going on in our world. We, uh, and, and most of them are the exact opposite of unity. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to get a picture of what disunity or the lack of unity looks like, just point to the climate in our world, politics, nations, everywhere, disunity. It's all over our world. Most dictionaries define unity as the state of being made one, the quality of being united into one taking many different parts and combining it into one. You're going to hear that term a lot, one. It's a condition of harmony. So if you're a singer or have a, a, any musical gift, you know what harmony is, but you also know what harmony isn't. Uh, I've been a pretty good example of what harmony is, not a lot of times. <laughs> harmony has always intrigued me. Even the, but even these definitions don't seem to paint the, the picture of biblical unity. One of the greatest examples of unity that God has given us is the covenant of marriage. Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians that a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul clearly says in that scripture, he said, this mystery is great. I would conclude that he's right about that, <laughs> but he is referencing Christ and the church. He, he clearly says, uh, says that. I agree with Paul. Just as a note, when you hear me talk about biblical unity, I may use the phrase, the oneness of God. And uh, I want to tell you, I am not talking about those groups that believe in the oneness doctrine at, that denies the truth of the Trinity of Christ. That's not the oneness that I'm talking about. And since I'm giving disclaimers here, I want to uh, let you know that this is, this is not an exhaustive message. I cannot tell you everything that there is to know about the subject of biblical unity. The unity of God is so vast, it may take me longer than the hour and a half that I'm going to be up here to talk to you about it. <laughs> so have you ever tried to do a job and you knew that you could do this job and you knew it was going to be fine, but you didn't have the tools to do it with? You knew how to do it, but you didn't have the tools. Today, I want to give you just a few more tools to do this and to understand this. Our triune God is the supreme example of unity. Uh, God, who is love, has forever existed perfectly in pure unity in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's talk for just a minute about what unity is not. Do you know that not all unity is good? 
Do you, uh, wait a minute, didn't Mark just quote Psalm 133 where he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity? Yes. But unity is like many other things. It can be used for good or it can be used for evil. In Genesis 11, we find the story of the Tower of Babel. You've heard this story before. These, these de- descendants of Noah's son, Ham, were unified in their, desire, in their desire to settle in the land of Shinar and build this tower that is going to reach to the heavens. You know why they were do- doing that? So they could make a name for themselves. The problem was not necessarily the tower when God came in and confused their languages. The problem was it was in direct opposition to what God had told them to do. That was the issue with the Tower of Babel. But they were unified in what they wanted, not what God wanted. There are, are radical groups all over our world. I don't know if you, if, if, I, don't know, I know that many of you did not see the movie that Mark talked about, Free Burma Rangers. And there are radical groups all over our world who systematically go around killing people who don't agree with them. And those groups are unified in what they are doing. The point is, not all unity is the unity of God. I want to be clear. The unity that I'm talking about today is the unity of God, the biblical unity that should exist between believers. So, biblical unity is not uniformity. Uniformity calls for everyone to be the same, no variance. Being one body in Christ does not mean that we all must look alike, talk alike. Y'all are glad y'all don't talk like me, right? (laughs) And enjoy the same kinds of activities. It does not mean that. That's uniformity. The very analogy of being brothers in Christ's body or members, brothers and sisters in Christ, implies that members don't look the same or even serve the same function. The beauty of the body is that it functions as one body, although it consists of many different members. So uniformity is not necessarily unity. What is biblical unity? The Bible has a lot to say about unity. So this is going to be a lot, so I'm going to warn you right up front, it's going to be a lot, and I'm going to try to walk you through it. It may be that you may have to come to me after the service and say, I had no idea what you were talking about. I hope that's not the case, but we'll see. So the Bible has, a, so the first, the first scripture we're going to, to take a look at is Ephesians 4. Paul, I'm going to give you a, a background on this. Paul is a prisoner in Rome where he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's writing to them about one of the many things that he wrote to them is about the unity of God. Ephesus was primarily a Greek city, so the Ephesian church was a mix of converted Jews and Gentiles, which made for a drastically different worldview between the two groups. So it isn't a shock that Paul's letter to them has several references about the need for unity in Christ. So just to be clear, these instructions to the Ephesian church will also help us to uh, get a better understanding of unity and, and how we can put that into practice in our everyday life. So Paul says this, starting at verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul makes it clear that we should first be walking worthy of our calling. Well, Barney, there you go. That just means that this is just for preachers and teachers and all those people that are called of God. Go back and look at who Ephesians is addressed to. It's to the saints at Ephesus. This is a letter to the Ephesian church, not just to the leaders or preachers or teachers. So what is this calling that Paul is talking about? This is one of those verses that begins with the word therefore. Now we've all heard that little saying that said when you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there. Thank you. Exactly. So this just means, this just means when you say, all right, we got to find out what that therefore is there for, it just means you got to read what was said before, or to say it in another way, in light of all that I just said, and then this. In many cases, when Paul is the author, we need to go back to nearly everything he said in the previous verses in Ephesians. So we're in chapter 4, so I'm not going to go back to all the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians and tell you all that Paul said. So I'll give you the quick highlights, just so we know what Paul is talking about when he refers to this calling. Chapter 1, and it's in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians, Paul said they are called to adoptions as sons of God to the praise of his glory. Also in chapter 1, he, he says we are to have our eyes enlightened to, have, to the, know the hope to which we are called. Also in chapter 2, he says we are called to be his, meaning Jesus and God's workmanship in Christ for good works as one body under the headship of King Jesus as one kingdom made up of all nations. So that's the therefore. So it's obviously not a special calling that is only designated for pastors and teachers and leaders. This is what is known in, I thought of you, Dwayne, when I said this. This is what is known in Appalachian scholarly circles as an all-y'all passage. I I guess you didn't know there were Appalachian scholarly circles. Paul begins to give us a compelling description of Christian unity. He says that we should be walking worthy of our calling. This simply means to walk like who we claim to be as men and women of God. And just to be sure that they understand what that, enta- what that entails, Paul gives them some attribute, uh, attributes that should be evident in our lives if we claim to be men and women of God. He talks about humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, I think that we all know what humility, gentleness, and patience mean. But tolerance in love gives an added dimension to it. Tolerance and patience are closely related, but not exactly the same. The original definition of tolerance and the way in which it, 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 it is used now are quite different, quite different. Originally, tolerance meant 
to acknowledge that others have differing beliefs and accept that it is their right to have those differing beliefs. In this way, Christians are absolutely to be tolerant. Absolutely. But recently, tolerance has taken on a whole new world. It has come to mean accepting that all those other beliefs are true. That's something that Christians cannot do. Cannot do. The defining factor in all these attributes that Paul talks about is love. If you actually love someone, it's much easier to be humble, gentle, patient, and even tolerant of them. So stick with, stick with me. Now we come to Paul's subject here, which is unity. So what does it mean to be diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? The first truth we're going to look at is, is the fact that you and I don't create unity. We don't make unity. As a matter of fact, we cannot create unity. Paul calls it in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. He says we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that sounds like Christianese double talk, doesn't it? So what does that even mean? We simply don't create unity. It is given by God through His Spirit, but it is absolutely up to us, up to me and you, to maintain that unity in the church. Our model for unity comes directly from the triune God that we serve. Paul begins to lay this out in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 4, and this will be up on the screen. Paul says, there is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one, ba one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is emphasizing the fact that when we are a believer, we share a lot of, of the things that are the same. Even though believers across the world obviously don't attend all the same church, but we share a lot of things. And there are practices maybe that differ slightly, but we still share a lot of things. We are still one body, one spirit, called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Every born-again believer in Christ is a, is a member of this one true church. Did you know that? There is a one true church. Every believer should be a member of that church. This is the church that Jesus suffered and, di and died for. The Holy Spirit is the force which unites all believers in Christ. We don't create unity. It is the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the giver of unity in the church. Unity of the church body testifies to the unity of the gospel message. So there is not more than one hope for salvation. There is not more than one object of faith who can save. There is not more than one baptism as a born-again believer and follower of Christ. When believers in the church body are, are divided, it communicates to the world that the message of salvation in Christ is subject to disunity. It, it gives them that message. The unity of the church body must be the model for the unity of the gospel. That's a big piece of it. No one 
is going to believe what we tell them about Christ if we're not unified in it. No one is going to believe it, and I wouldn't blame, I wouldn't blame them. Paul continues with how unity is maintained in the body. Uh, it's going to be start, start with verse 11, Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all, all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So let's look at what Paul is saying here. According to verse 11, there is a correlation between what the apostles and the prophets have done and what the evangelists, pastors, and teachers should be doing. Is Paul saying that there will likely need to be some instruction that leads to unity of the faith? Most certainly. Most certainly. First of all, I would urge you to take advantage of all of the opportunities within this church and anywhere else to be equipped for the work of ministry. We're trying to create more opportunities here. We're, and I'm just, this is just a little soapbox message here for what we're do- doing. We're trying to create more opportunities. Get, get your kids in, involved in the youth group. Uh, your kids need to start getting equipped as early as possible. If you can attend that Sunday evening Bible study that Curtis is doing, I urge you to do it. He, he's going to help equip you for the work of ministry. Attend a, a small group. This will help you to become equipped. Equipping the saints is circular. Did you know that? It's circular. When God's people, the saints, you, are equipped for the work of ministry, then the body of the church is built up. When that happens, we start to see unity of the faith. So the word faith in verse 13 doesn't refer to the trust or belief at salvation. It refers to the body of Christian truth in this context. This is the gospel in its most complete, most pure form. How do we practice Christian unity in a way that lets others know that we are the people of God? In Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul told the Colossian church, He said, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Do you see a a, a model starting to form there? Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things. Put on love, Paul says, which is the perfect bond of unity. Disunity can take on many forms. In Mark 9, you can read the story of the transfiguration of of Christ. He comes back down from the mountain, and he heals this young boy who was possessed with a spirit. Then he and the disciples are walking uh, through Jerusalem. Jesus is telling them 
that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, he would be killed, and he would rise again on the third day. So Mark 9.32 tells us that they didn't understand his statement, but they were afraid to ask him about it. So they got to Capernaum, and I love this. They got to Capernaum, and evidently Jesus had noticed that the disciples had been privately talking amongst themselves on the way there. So Jesus said to, him, to, to them, hey guys, so what were you talking about? What was it you were talking about back there when you were talking amongst yourselves? You know what they did? They didn't answer him. And the scripture says they kept silent because they had been talking about which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine that? These are guys that are walking with Jesus on the road. They're walking along, and they're so disunified that they're saying, well, you know what, John, I think, I think that Peter's probably a little higher than me. No, I don't think, no, I think he's not. No, it's me that's probably higher than him. Can you imagine that? Disunity can take on many different forms. Paul also dealt with some disunity in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, he said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So what was the division that Chloe's people had told Paul about? Paul spells it out. Paul's pretty clear. If you ask him something, he's going to give you the answer. If you, if you want to know, just wait. It's coming. In verse 12, he said, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I of Christ. Paul asked him, Has Christ been divided? Disunity can come in many, many different forms. When the body of Christ operates in disunity, it paints a, a false picture of God to the world. When they see a church that can't get along, that can't do what they know that they should be doing, it's a, it paints a false picture of God in the world. God wants his people to make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4. It, so if all Christians base their beliefs on the Bible, they should be able to settle every argument according to the truth, right? Doesn't always happen that way. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. Our human nature, preferences, different interpretations of Scripture even can cause disagreements. But it should not be a cause for disunity in the church. Should not. So is there any hope for unity in the church. There is. There is. I want you to turn with me. It's going to be up on the screen to John 17. And this is going to be a lot, and I'm going to warn you right up front. It's going to be a lot. We're, I'll stop along the way. Make sure you're still asleep. <laughs> this is what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. God had given all authority, had given him all authority over all flesh, even the power to give eternal life. So Jesus begins to pray. 
and he prays to his father and asks him to glorify the son, Jesus knew that the time uh, it was coming when God would glorify him. He also knew that the time of his death was about 24 hours away at this point. He prays to his father, and he acknowledges that up to that time, he has accomplished everything that God sent him to do, but he knows the cross is coming quickly. But instead of being in anguish about his imminent death, his own death, he starts focusing on the disciples that are, that, that are around him. He starts praying for them and asking God to give them joy. Not just any joy, but his joy. He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. Not just any truth, but in the truth of God's word. So I want to start at John 17, verse 6. And I'll tell you again, this is going to be lengthy, so stick with me, okay? John, John 17, starting at verse 6. I have manifested, this is Jesus' words, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, and Jesus is praying to his Father, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them, Jesus says. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves, talking about the disciples, are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Are you still with me? All right. This entire section of Jesus' prayer is asking these, is asking the Father to make these believers one, just like Jesus and the Father are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus said, he continues on, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So stick with me, okay? I know this is a lot. There's truth in here that we need to hear. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been focusing on the 12, technically the 11, uh, because in verse 12, he's already noted that Judas is the only one that was not included. The entire prayer so far has been centered around the 11, but now his focus shifts. He shifts his focus to who he's praying for. Look at what he says in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these guys that are here, 
but for those also who believe in me through their word. Wait a minute. Who's Jesus talking about here? Who are those that would believe in Jesus through the word of the original disciples? Well, after many generations of time, folks, that would be you and me. That would be all y'all. And not just us, but all those throughout the ages of time that will put their faith in Christ. Jesus is praying for them. He is praying for you, for you. Now, wouldn't it be an interesting thing to do? Do you remember when you first gave your life and your heart to Christ? Do you remember when you first heard the, the Word of God? And, 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 and I'm not talking about just believing that Jesus existed. I'm talking about, Jacob said last week, he said that, that it is an undisputed historical fact that Jesus existed, and that's true. I'm talking about the belief that he is who he said he was. I'm not talking about just believing that he actually existed. I'm talking about who he, was, who he said he was, and he came and he accomplished all that God had sent him to do. Do you remember when you believed in Jesus like that? Do you remember that day? Wouldn't it be an amazing study to try and go back? Boy, this would tax genealogy.com and ancestry.com. But wouldn't it be an amazing thing to be able to go as far back as you could and, 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 and see how far you could get on how you got the Word of God? Wouldn't that be a cool thing to do? Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it was your father. Maybe it was your grandmother. Maybe it was... It was somebody else in your family. But wouldn't it be cool to go back and find out my grandmother was the only one in my case that ever told me about God. I would love to know how she got told about God. I would love to be able to go back and find out how that person and go back generations of time. That would be an amazing thing to do. But all those, all those people have been prayed for by Christ. It would be amazing to try and go back and figure that out. So maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a total stranger. But if we were able to trace all the way back on every person who proclaimed God's word that eventually ended up coming to you and I, we would get back to some of the original disciples that were standing there in front of Jesus when he prayed this prayer. That's an amazing thing. And for Jesus to look beyond that and say, not for these only, but for all those that believe based on their word. Again, who's Jesus praying for here? All, all, all y'all. And all y'all that are coming later. So those who were there and all that would believe on him through, through their word. So we've been very clear on the fact that we cannot take any scripture and put our understanding. We are a church that strongly believes in correct Bible interpretation. If you, if you haven't been here before, you're, you, we're, we strongly believe that. We strongly practice that. So in many, many cases, we can, let, let me back up for just a second. This scripture in John amazes me because there's not a lot of scripture in the Bible that we can take and, and put it into a context of knowing what the original biblical writer was thinking. There's not many scripture you can do that unless you can tell by what they said. Very difficult to do unless it is expressly stated. Outside of the foretelling concept of prophecy, 
It's extremely difficult to claim that something said by a biblical writer or speaker relates directly to you and I thousands of years later. And that, and that all that would come after the disciples. How do we know that? It's expressly stated by Jesus himself. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, he said, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Church, that is you and me. Don't forget that. If Jesus prayed for you, wouldn't you want to know what he was praying for? What did he pray? Verse 21. (laughs) That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see how important unity is? Do you know that unity proclaims to the world that God sent Christ and we believe on Christ? Beyond that, man, if, we, if they can't see us in unity to that, we're sorry Christians. Jesus is talking about the unity that should be present in the lives of all believers. I think it's important that we should be talking about and understanding Something that was on Jesus' mind clearly when he was about a day or so so away of dying on a cross. There's a direct correlation of the unity that exists between Jesus and, and and his Father and in turn between you and I in this world today. The church doesn't create unity. Jesus wants us to be a part of the unity that has always existed between the the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This unity is not just so we can all agree on everything. This unity has a much deeper meaning. This unity should make onlookers, people in the world, believe that God sent Jesus. It should do that. Unity is supremely important. Jesus goes on. Verse, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Do you want to know how we can show God's glory? Strive for unity. Jesus continues, verse number 23, I told you it's a lot. It's only going to be about another hour, so just hang, hang tight. Verse, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be, listen to what he says here, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How important is biblical unity in the life of the believer? Jesus said it was a way that the world will recognize that God the Father sent Jesus the Son and also a way that the world can know that God loves them. Do you want to convince somebody that God actually loves them? I was one that was unconvinced of that for years. Show them unity. Show them unity in the body of of Christ. Christian unity is not just a matter of being friendly or polite. It's bound up in our common relationship with God. It's grounded in our common salvation. We don't create it, but we definitely, definitely maintain and preserve it. And we also should be putting it into practice. Folks, if Jesus 
prayed for us to become perfected, which means complete, in unity, do we believe that God will answer that prayer? I believe that He will. I believe that He will. If you are willing, does it mean that unity just drops out of the sky and we instantly become unified? No, no. Second Timothy tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There are numerous other Scriptures that I could give to you that prove that Christian living and striving for unity takes some work. It takes some work. I mean, heaven's sakes, I don't know two people that agree with me on anything. It takes some work. Maybe it's just... <laughs> Maybe you're agreeing with me. It's, it takes work on your part, I'm sure. <clears throat> there are, uh, it's the most important endeavor, one of the most, that you can get into in this life, striving for unity. I, I, I do believe that there has been and will continue to be an equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. No wonder Jesus was so adamant when he prayed, may they all be one as you, Father, I, as, as, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so the world is going to know that God sent Christ into the world. It could be a disagreement about doctrine, politics, uh, or another aspect of a belief, of a belief system that seems important enough to either connect us or divide us. Politics in particular are, can be a, a major point of contention, uh, even for some folks in the church. No matter what the issue is, I'm going to give you three different, three quick guidelines that will help you, that will help you strive after unity. So keep these guidelines in mind how to deal with the divisions that come in the church. First of all, don't internalize or moralize every issue. The Bible doesn't specifically speak on every issue in our world today. And some topics are open to, open to interpretation. Some issues are not as cut and dried as you would think. So each of us needs to, first of all, rely on our own conscience and experience to discern the best way forward. It's okay it's okay if others come to a different conclusion than you do. It's okay. It's all right. Secondly, keep an open mind. As with any disagreement, a little open-mindedness goes a long way. You may be sure you're right. I was right one time. <clears throat> may be sure you're right, but the other person, just ask my wife, but the other person likely is sure that they're right too. If you're in the midst of a disagreement with someone, listen sincerely and consider the reality that you, that you might be wrong or at least that you may not understand their view completely. Number three, and I'm hurrying, I promise. Weigh your words. Ranting on social media and name-calling call, are not good strategies for maintaining unity. I, I said, ranting on social media and name-calling are not good strategies for maintaining unity. It's okay to share your opinions, but you weigh your words carefully. 
always be respectful of the other person. I don't care if you know them or not. Always. If you claim Christ, you are representing God. Do you know that? Weigh your words carefully and show respect. And remember, in some cases, you're probably better off just listening and not saying much of anything. That just, you know, it's like sometimes you just need to keep your mouth closed. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. I'm almost done. Only got a little bit longer here. Starting at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, Paul says, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And Paul says, beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I told you at the beginning that most of our world is steeped in chaos and disunity. The church should look drastically different than that, folks. We should be drastic. We should be showing something that is far away from what the world is showing today. I I don't like the term that we don't want to look like the world. I don't even know what that means anymore. I've heard that said throughout ages of time, and that's just bunk. You should be showing how what God is by the way that you conduct yourself. That should be a good way to prove that God sent Jesus when you are in unity. Folks, if we're not doing that, we're not doing what God wants us to do. We're not. We should look drastically different. Romans 15, I'm almost done, 1 through 7. Now we who are strong, this is great advice. It's great advice, but I would, I would say it's, it's mandatory, mandatory, mandatory. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his edification, the neighbor, not yourself. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope, Paul says. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one, another, with one another according to Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us 